we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12. And as we move through Matthew's gospel, Matthew 11 is all about dealing with misunderstandings. People misunderstanding who Jesus is, what he came to do, even friends misunderstanding him. And then 12 moves into open confrontation and conflict. And, you know, if you think about the reality of your own life, one of the most important issues that will determine the quality of your relationships, how much job satisfaction you have at work will be how you deal with conflict, the amount, the type, the way, the conflict you're in and how it's dealt with. And what we have in, in Matthew chapter 12 is, is a whole chapter that's all about conflict. And in this story, we're going to look at starting in verse 22. On the surface, it seems like in many ways, just an ordinary, simple, everyday, kind of extraordinary Jesus story. So, I mean, we have a man who has tremendous need and brokenness. He comes to Jesus, Jesus heals him. And that kind of should be the end of the story. But then you look and there's a surprising twist because some people get really upset about this. You think, wow, what would cause them to get upset? But then underneath the surface, you see in this simple story, you actually see that it is painting a picture of the cosmic conflict that we're all in. In one sense, this is no simple story. It's a story that is um, deep. It, it reflects the deep spiritual battle that we're all engaged in. And it's profoundly symbolic. And it's deeply personal. So let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. So here in just one verse, he kind of sets the stage. Human possessed man who is blind and unable to speak was brought to him and he healed him so that the man could both speak and see. Then amazing. I mean, that should be end of story. A demon possessed man. Now, Matthew's going to be very clear that he has a, a physical problem. He cannot see and he cannot speak, but he's going to let us know. They know how to differentiate these things. He's going to let us know that this physical malady is a result of spiritual oppression. It's because he's demon possessed. It's not always the reason for the physical maladies in the gospels, but he's very clear this is why this is happening to him. And then Jesus Jesus heals him. And then notice the response. All the crowds were astonished, amazed, said, could this be the son of David? So they celebrate. And then in verse 24, notice again, the whole chapter, the conflict that we seen between the Pharisees. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So what I want you to think about first, all right, why does Matthew choose this story? He's already told us in, in verse 15 that the, uh, many people came to Jesus and he healed all of them. Why does he pick out this one particular story of all the source material he could have told us, all the stories? Why this one? And what is he trying to do? You know, John kind of hyperbolically says that, look, if we wrote down everything that Jesus did, we could fill all the books in the world. So he had plenty of different stories he could have chosen. Why does he pick this one? You know, Matthew's gospel is the teaching gospel. Everything he does, he's trying to teach us something specific. And what I think he wants us to see that what this, this man's experience in microcosm, what he's experiencing in microcosm is actually illustrative of the, the macro problem in the world. 
Like what he's suffering with is, is an illustration of what everyone in the world is suffering with. The drama of his story is the drama of the world being played out. See, in a few simple words, he's going to paint for us the picture of the cosmic conflict that we're all engaged in. You know, one way we phrase it here is that the story of the world is that this is God's good world, ruined by sin, redeemed by the Son, and being recreated by the Holy Spirit. But that's not just the story of the world. That's the story of every one of your lives. Every person in here, this is your story as well. In some way, you are God's good creation that's been ruined by sin and being uh, redeemed by the Son and recreated. If you're a Christian, that's your story. And so in this story, the two keys is because of demonic oppression, this man cannot see and he cannot speak. But what we've seen, just like the man with the withered hand, we saw that he had a withered hand, but it was actually a story about withered hands and withered hearts. And here in this story, we're going to see he's not the only one who can't see and can't speak. And this is actually going to be a miracle. Um, the, the question is, how do we come to a place where we can see and speak? How you see becomes central and how you speak becomes central. How you see reveals in this story who you're actually committed to, who your allegiances are. That's how you perceive of the world, how you make sense of it, how you interpret what's happening to you and out in the world, how you see and then how you speak. How you speak reveals your character, what's in your heart. Perception and speech become the central issues, the central miracle, the central battleground of this cosmic conflict. So actually, as we read through the story, I want you to notice what is the problem of perception, and then how does that come out in the problem of speech? So first notice the problem of perception in verse 24. Didn't you hear it? You know, they just, everybody has seen this remarkable miracle. And then how do the Pharisees respond? Uh, we know what's going on here. Oh, you, you all think that he's doing this by the power of God and he's somebody's, but we know we can really see what's happening. He's only doing this by the power of Beelzebub, the ruler of demons. Then notice how Jesus responds in 25, knowing their thoughts, he told them, Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself can stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. And if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, that they blasp and the bla but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will not be forgiven him, or it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is known by its fruits. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. The good person produces good things from the storeroom of good, and the evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will have to, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. 
So you hear the two kind of themes, their perception, they can't see. So there's a blind man who, because of demonic oppression, he can't see, he can't speak. And then there's a whole group of Pharisees because of demonic oppression. They see wrongly and they speak wrongly. So what I want to do is kind of take those two themes of perception and speech. And for the next two weeks, we'll kind of unpack those and talk about what does it mean to be spiritually blind and what does it mean to have um, destructive speech. So today we'll talk about perception, how you see the world. And then next week we'll talk about speech and how that reveals what's in your heart. So we're going to look at perception first. And in these first couple of verses... Starting in 25 through about 30, we can see three different things about spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness, what does it do to us? Spiritual blindness means we can't see our own contradictions. Spiritual blindness means that we don't recognize and we can't see our own condemnation. And spiritual blindness means we can't recognize or we don't see the actual conflict we're in. So let's think about first one. Notice how Jesus points out that they're spiritually blind. And what that means is they can't actually see their own obvious contradictions. They can't see their own contradictions. Notice the the illustration he used in 25. Knowing their thoughts. He told them every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction. No city or house. Three different illustrations. Kingdom, then city, and then house. And none of these can stand if there's internal divisions. I mean, in one sense, Jesus is just using basic logic, basic common sense. I mean, this is kind of the the heartbeat of, you know, Lincoln's famous address on uh, a kingdom divided or, you know, Rome at this time. They were far more worried about internal divisions than they were external, internal threats of civil war. You look at other nations like China right now, they're far more worried about uh, internal divisions than external threats. Uh, threats. And it's just basic logic. I mean, Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're saying, don't you realize how you don't see your own contradictions? Which is it's common sense. Satan is not dumb enough to give himself over to internal discord and dissension. And one of the things I think is so fascinating when you look at this whole chapter is the different things that Jesus uses to reason with them, to argue with them, to uh, debate in, in, in this chapter. You know, the first thing we saw that he used his argument is appeal to Scripture. In the beginning of chapter 12, if you had read, if you had read, have you not read? If you knew what this means, have you not read? And then the second thing in their conflict he uses is just a common kind of call to common decency. You know, who among you, if they saw one of their sheep suffering, wouldn't help them? And then here he just uses basic logic. So wait, what you're accusing, don't you realize that what you're saying actually does not make sense? It's contradictory. And I think it's so fascinating because I think a lot of times when we think about the dynamic between faith and reason, we think that faith is kind of the faculty that has to take over when data and logic expire. We usually like the leap of faith is a leap into the dark. And that's one of the phrases I most dislike because it's just so untrue. Because in the Bible, the leap of faith is rarely ever even a leap, and it's not ever a leap into the dark. It's always a leap into the light. I mean, you look throughout the Bible, whenever God calls someone to do something, they all have really good reasons to do it and obey. Like, if God exists, then the dumbest thing you can do is factor in life as if he doesn't. That's just bad logic, 
And then here we see he's appealing to just common sense. So it doesn't make any sense. You claim to be able to see, oh, I know how this is really going. I know what's really going on here. What's really going on is you're using demonic powers to do these things. And you say, no, that, that just on the surface doesn't make any sense. And I think part of the irony is what they so confidently claim to be true is exactly and 100% wrong. I mean, actually, the truth is the exact opposite of what they're claiming. And one of the challenges is Jesus will force us, he will force you to face the reality of your own contradictions. But what spiritual blindness means is it, it's, it's blinders. We call it blindness because we can't see them. We can't see them. You know, part of the Pharisees' problem is that they're just not seeing the world as it actually is. You know, how we perceive the world, they're not seeing it right. And I think if you just kind of think about it, what's the kind of big challenge is there's such remarkably different ways that people are perceiving the world. You know, one of the interesting things about this story is that the, same, the two groups of people witnessed the same exact event and they came to polar opposite conclusions on the same event. I mean, isn't that just, I mean, interesting. I don't know any other word to say it. And one of the kind of the disorienting things about this past couple of years is just how everyone can kind of see the same events and come to such drastically different conclusions about them. We start thinking, why? Why does it happen this way? Why are we seeing the world so different? And I wonder what are, you know, here, Jesus, there's kind of two ways you can see the world. You can either see it through the lens where you're interpreting through a kind of satanic lens or, or a spiritual, the work of the spirit lens. And I wonder what are kind of the two prominent, dominant ways that we see the world now. You look out the world and say, all right, does the world have meaning? Does it have structure? Do we have to see the world and then conform ourselves to it? Or are we free to act any way we want and we create technologies to help us escape the consequences of those actions? You know, Carl Truman has a great book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And one of the things he talks about is how kind of one of the dominant mantras kind of in our age is, uh, can be summed up from a quote from the French you know, Enlightenment philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who says, man is born free, but everywhere he's in chains. And you know, that's such a, an appealing kind of sentiment to our age that yes, we're born free and everywhere you look, we're being chained, we're being bound, society chains us, traditions chain us, superstition changes, chains us, religion chains us, we're born free and we got to throw off all the shackles. But he said, you actually stop and think about that sentence, it is self-evidently an obvious nonsense. Like, it's something we would believe, but you all know, if you just think about it for a minute, it's utterly ridiculous. Not one person in here was born free. Every single person in this room was born by the tremendous cost, sacrifice, and pain of someone else. And you all know that if you took any newborn out of the NICU in Nemours and set them in the woods, they would not last two days. You're not born free. You're born utterly and totally dependent on the goodness and love of others. And then one of the questions is like, how long does that dependence actually last? This is something we're wrestling with. In our, how long does it last? 
I mean, some of you parents, you tell us, like, when do they stop being totally dependent on you? 18, 27, 39, when does it happen? I mean, I feel like in our parenting, we're moving into a milestone era because we're almost at the point. We are almost at the point where all four kids can buckle themselves in the car and put on their own shoes. I mean, this is going to be liberating for us. You're not born free. Utterly dependent, utterly enmeshed in a web of community and relationships. So I wonder if Jesus would just laugh at that and say, that idea that you're celebrating, that's not how the world is and you know it. And one of the things that just spiritual blindness does, it keeps us from seeing the reality of reality. And we can't see And it's just worth pausing and thinking about, all right, what are the things that I'm not seeing? What don't I see? Listen this week for George uh, Soros, or uh, uh, Saunders, who's a literary critic from Syracuse, and he was talking about one of his favorite short stories, an Anton Chekhov short story, and then he paints a picture of this character in that short story. And this is 1890s Russia. And he says kind of the tragedy of this character is that she has all of the conditions for her own happiness have been met around her and she can't see any of them. I thought, mm, that's convicting. You know, what is it we can't see? Have all the conditions of like your own happiness been met around you and you don't see? And one of the things Jesus challenged him is, no, you don't see, you're not seeing. You're not seeing the reality of your own um, contradictions. You're claiming this is true and it's just, it's obviously not. You've been spiritually blinded. But spiritual blindness also, it doesn't just cause us not to see our own internal contradictions. It also causes us to, uh, it means that we can't see our own condemnation. Look at what he confronts them with in verse 27. He says, and kind of the second line, the logic line of reasoning. And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has become upon you. You His second kind of line is saying, no, you actually, by making this critique of me, you don't realize you're condemning yourself. So be careful. And this is one of the ironic ways that judgment works in the Bible. So often the psalmists, they tell you that uh, the people who dig a pit, they eventually fall into it. And that's the dynamic of judgment. Jesus even told them, certain amount, by the measure you use is going to be measured against you. By the way you judge others, that's how people are going to judge you. And look what he says. Look, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, then your sons, your sons are doing the same thing. By who do they do it? And this is a really interesting argument. You know, what he's saying is that the power of exorcism, the spiritual power in the spiritual realm is not exclusive or unique to him. So on one hand, it's kind of impressive, spiritual, powerful demonstrations alone aren't going to be enough to, as a criterion of truth. But he says, your sons. Now, first century world, exorcism was a thriving business. You know, in both kind of the pagan and then the Jewish world. So in the Jewish world, you'd have complex kind of, it's marked by complex incantations, magical charms, visual effects. And it's something you could make a lot of money if you were perceived to be good at this. But it's also interesting to think about how this would dynamic would play out in the pagan, uh, in the pagan world. Um, kind of hesitating how to, how to phrase this. Um, so if you would go into a pagan temple... And 
Anybody who's ever been into like a techno nightclub <laughs> or some churches <laughs> would recognize this environment. So like you would go into the pagan temple and the way it worked, I mean, you would have all types of smoke that would be going on. You'd have the manipulation of lights. You would have drums that were driving the hard drum beat. the <laughs> And the hard drum driving, you would have hallucinogenic drugs. And part of the whole, the whole dynamic was to be able to, you'd have mantras that would be chanted or sung over and over and over. And the whole dynamic was to bypass your cognitive faculties. So you kind of get in, in underneath the surface and it was just rife with all types of kind of demonic spiritual oppression and different activities. And this is why when the Israel, like when the people were following Jesus, remember in chapter both in nine and 12, when they see him casting out demons, they said, we've never seen anything like this. We've never seen anyone do this without all of the, the magic. He just says a word and it happens. And one of the things he said, all right, if, if um, you actually can't see, if you're critiquing me, don't you realize you're actually critiquing your own, self, your own selves, your own sons? They're blind to this. You know, Francis Schaeffer used to talk about, you know, uh, we're very uncomfortable with the idea of judgment, but if we're all honest, and he would use the thing, if we kept a giant tape recorder, so that's kind of how old that illustration was. If you kept a giant tape recorder and you just pressed record and you recorded the way you spoke to people for a week, and then God just used the way you spoke to others as the criterion for your own judgment, you know you'd be in trouble. And that's exactly what Jesus is confronting them with. And I think it's such a dangerous thing when, you know, the Pharisees take the posture, oh, we really know what's going on. We know what's happening. And he says, well, maybe you don't. You know, we live in the world where everybody is so quick to render judgment about what they see is really happening. Like, we know what's really happening here. This really is all about a power play. This is really all about oppressing uh, women or this other group. This is really, we know what's really going on. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And we want to be very careful when we claim that we can see what's really going on underneath the surface. Because you know, if you're honest, you don't know what's really going on in your own heart. Your own heart is this mess, this tangled mess of conflicting desires and drives and goals and aspirations and uh, advocations of responsibility. And so here, one of the things they're doing, they, they don't recognize their critique of Jesus is actually critiquing themselves. And then notice the third thing. He says this, the third thing that spiritual blindness, what it means is you actually don't see the actual nature of the conflict. You're in a real battle. You're in a real conflict. Look in verse uh, 29. It's kind of the third line of logic. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions, unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. And this is such an interesting illustration that Jesus used, because on the surface, he said, hold on, wait. Jesus, Jesus is comparing himself to a thief who breaks into someone's house, ties them up, and steals all their stuff. Is that a good comparison? Is that the kind of illustration we want to be using? And maybe the Pharisees think, well, of course, we've already accused you of breaking all the other commandments. You break the Sabbath, you break these other commandments, and now you're breaking the eighth that you're going to steal. So what, kind of, what is this illustration he's using? 
And actually, that's, you know, that illustration is going to break into the house, tying up the strong man, stealing his stuff. The, the image of the thief is not the right image. The image is, uh, you almost need to think like Liam Nielsen. You know, he kind of resurrected his career on a whole series of movies that all have the exact same plot. Someone he loves is kidnapped, and so he goes on this rampage to get them back. That's kind of the image that's happening here. Remember Isaiah 40 through 55 tells us, paints a picture of the servant. He's already quoted from 42. I think Jesus is riffing off Isaiah 49, starting in verse 24. Where he says, can the prey be taken from a mighty man or the captives of a tyrant? Can they be delivered? For this is what the Lord says, even the captives of a mighty man will be taken and the prey of a tyrant will be delivered. I will contend with the strong one who contends with you. I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they will be drunk by their own blood. Then all humanity will know that I, the Lord, am your savior, your redeemer, your mighty one who rescues you. And so the image is very similar to the image of David. When David and his, his men, they were out in battle and their, their wives, children were, were taken, uh, captured, and they go and get them back. It's the image of the Exodus where Pharaoh is presented as the, the mighty one who's bound the Lord's uh, beloved son. And so with a strong arm, he's going he's gonna to break into his house and set them free. That's the imagery here. And the image is that we're actually captives. We've been taken captive and are held hostage by a strong man, and we need a stronger one to come and to break us out and to set us free. But as we think about it, right, so that's the image, that we've been taken captive. But the context is all about how we see the world, how we perceive it. So it's worth thinking about what ways of perceiving the world can take us captive. What ways in perceiving the world are we amidst in a conflict in? And I wonder, um, something I've been thinking a lot about recently, and I just wonder if probably the, maybe the two dominant ways of kind of perceiving the world or the way that is given to us in Christianity and then a certain type of secular materialism. And they're in conflict because they're saying such opposite things. So kind of secular materialism would say, all right, there, in reality, there is no creator to worship. There's no redeemer to love. There's no image of God in others to honor. There's no future to prepare for. There's no heaven to hope in. And you're actually not free until you just own and admit those things. You have to own and admit. That's just superstition that's meant to uh, oppress you. And then Christianity looks back and says, no, no, wait a second. If you actually sweep away all of those things, if you sweep away the reality of the creator, the redeemer, the image of God in one another, in our future hope and glory, if you sweep away those things, you actually sweep away the rock upon which any healthy, whole, full life can be built upon. And so secular materialism would say, well, no, 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 we actually, we have no knowledge of the world except that which the sciences give us, whether those are physical sciences, psychological sciences, political science, social science, economic science, behavioral science, we have no knowledge but that. And then there is no life beyond, you know, J.I. Packer calls it heart stop day. You know, there's no life beyond the day your heart stops, or maybe brain dead day, no life beyond that. What makes life worth living in that 
you know, you came from nothingness, you're going to nothingness, there's nothing after this, so the only way to make this short time you have worth living is just uh, to pursue self-discovery, self-actualization, the pursuit of personal pleasure. You can try to lessen the misery and sorrows of others as long as it's convenient and easy for us or for you. Religion needs to be set aside. Sin is simply a social construct that the powerful try to impose on you. So the whole, that's one way of viewing the world, but then Christianity says something very different. So no, we're actually in a conflict between two ways of seeing the world, and that's a strong man who wants to captivate and capture your mind. We see the world very differently. We see that God exists, and he is ultimate. And what's ultimate life is to know him and to see ourselves and others as immortal beings. And the highest form of life is to to worship and to know the one who made us and the one who loved us, to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then to love others as we love ourselves. And we see that way of viewing the world actually as an irrational negating of all of our deepest instincts and longings. And if we believe that, we're taken captive because it dehumanizes us. We say, that's not, no, what our real problem, um, you talk about health, our real problem is that sin is a universal infection in which none of us can escape. It's a disease reaction to the knowledge of God that's supposed to nourish us and give us life. That's our real problem. Our real problem is our anti-God disposition of mind and heart, which leads us to pig-headedly refuse a life of godliness as our way of life. And if we walk down this other path, this path that's paved with self, a self-oriented path, it's actually the path of spiritual destruction. It's the long, slow suicide of the soul. And the real conflict here is that these ways of seeing uh, life, reality, what does it mean to seek after meaning? And so in this story, you know, in one sense, it's a very small story, but it's actually opening up for us the greatest realities that we could ever wrestle with, the great realities that are taking place all around us in our normal everyday life, in normal everyday decisions, we're engaged in this cosmic battle. And then notice, the, at least in this first part, the, the climactic section of verse 30, anyone who is not with me is against me. Anyone who does not gather with me scatters. So Jesus draws us into this cosmic conflict, and he says, you have to choose sides. Whose side are you on? And the two sides are either with me or against me. Key term is me, three times, with me, against me, scatters uh, with me. With me is the key term. And so all of this miraculous ministry is meant to point us to the me, to Jesus, to love him, to serve him, to follow him. And kind of the greatest question we ever ask, all right, what does it mean to be with him? And by his spirit, he gives us eyes to see. And what are we meant to see? We're meant to see that the holy and gracious father who out of his infinite love, he made us for himself. He made us to know him and to love him and to walk with him. But once we had sinned and we become a subject to evil and death, that he in his mercy sent his son into the world for our salvation. And that by the power of his Holy Spirit, in obedience to his will, he came. And the way he binds the strong man is by himself being bound upon the cross. And on the cross, he offered himself once and for all so that by his suffering, 
He might, we might be saved. And then three days later, when he broke open the bounds that he was bound in in the tomb, that strong man's house was broken, and then uh, liberty was brought forth. He trampled hell and Satan underneath his, his feet, and now he has risen and is at the right hand of the Father who welcomes us to him and says, Come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And then at last, what hopefully we can see what we're actually looking at in the world. And we can hear what he says. We can actually hear what we're listening to and see here in the story that the speaker is the son of God, who is our maker and our redeemer and who made this priceless reality that you call you or we call me. He made this priceless reality in the first place and he gave his incarnate life to retrieve me from the ruin of my own making. And he has in his mind, uh, for all those who receive his word, something so much more radical than anyone can ever imagine or map out. And that by the power of his spirit, we can become new creatures. And the old is gone and the new comes. And then we can see and we can hear and we can speak. So each week here at Trinity, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, which is his invitation uh, to us to come to his table. And so as we do, ask him to help you, help you give, give spiritual eyes so you can see and a, and a voice so you can speak, help you to see the reality of who you are, who he is, what he came to do and how he can transform you and how what seems that on the surface looks like just a very unimpressive cracker actually is symbolic of something so much deeper and more profound. So on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after the supper, Jesus took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy. We praise you that you are the strong and mighty redeemer who sees that when we are held in uh, captivity, bound by our own sin, bound by the sin of others, that you come and you can break us free. So I pray for anyone here this morning who knows that they need to be set free from something that has bound them and chained them and they have looked for freedom in so many places and can't find what they're looking for, we pray that you would set them free. We pray that you would help us, help us to have the humility to recognize and to be aware of our own contradictions, and then help us um, to see those and by your spirit to be able to overcome them. We pray that you help us to see that uh, what we see here, that so often our battle is not with flesh and blood, but it's with principalities and powers of this present world. So help us to see the real conflict we're in. But above all things, help us to live in light of the remarkable victory that we have as long as we are with you. So in all things, Lord, we ask that you help us to abide with you. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace.